Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving, Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favouritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, See to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. In preparing this sermon, 
I felt quite a lot like I was getting ready for Christmas. In the sense of, oh, <laughs> there's a lot to do. There's a lot of ground to cover. How am I going to get it all done? But actually, there's something good at the end. There's something really good. And these words, I think, are going to bring a lot of life to us. Now, I've been in churches where the sermon is around an hour long. Won't inflict that on you tonight. Uh, rest assured. But there is a lot of ground to cover. So I'm going to preach fast and I'm going to preach intense. It may feel a little bit like a pint of espresso through the ears or a big glug of complex car strength whiskey or maybe like watching Lord of the Rings on fast forward. But if you don't like coffee, whiskey or Lord of the Rings, frankly, I can't really do anything for you. Um, but it is going to be intense. So get ready, sit up. If you take notes and that kind of thing, do take notes. If you like to do that, if you don't, then just, you know, move your shoulders from time to time. Okay, this is the last of our series on the book of Colossians, which is a letter written to the early church. And we've been journeying through these words written by the Apostle Paul from prison over the last five weeks. And we end with these practical instructions and these personal notes. We've looked at the reality of Christ and all his glory and the way in which the church in Colossae was tempted to be distracted and deceived by ideas contrary to Christ. And Paul writes Colossians to awaken the church's heart again, the incomparably great glory of Jesus, and to call the church into faithful witness. And then we get to this at the end. Now, I bet there are a few words, and I hazard a guess, maybe even from the very first words, in fact, that when you heard Anna read, you thought, I'm out of here. <laughs> Tap me out. I'm not up for this. What do you say? Wives, submit to your husbands. Handmaid's Tale, anyone seen it? Watched it? No? Read it? Read the book? Yeah, yeah, if you, if you haven't, it's terrifying. And I just wonder if that's the kind of images that come to mind. Wives submit to your husbands. Yikes! And then slaves obey to your masters. Really, at this point, some people might be, I'm heading for the door. This is really weird. Others of you thinking in a bit of a kind of preaching sport entertainment, how is Tim going to get out of this one? And for others, this wasn't just theory. This is actually, this is painful. Those words triggered particularly painful moments and experiences. Perhaps these words have been used for you to do harm to you or, 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 or those that you love. Now, whatever you're thinking and feeling right now, can you just lend me your imaginations for the next few minutes? Because I think you'll be surprised at what these words meant at the time and I think what they will mean for us this evening. But it's also important that I say we don't need to agree. You know, some of us might also have been in churches where disagreement cost. Well, if you disagreed with the preacher, you knew that would cost you. Let me just tell you really clearly, disagreement is free. <laughs> you can disagree with me. This is a church of multiple opinions. We're questioning, we're all answering together. If you disagree with some of the things I share, that's okay. It's for free. You can disagree. So as we always approach the Bible, I just thought I'd remind us of a couple of things. Firstly, that it is authoritative. Now, the whole church all over the world has always sought to seek wisdom from the Bible. But just a reminder that we're a Church of England church, and the Church of England signs up to a certain system of ideas, and we stand under the authority of Scripture. Now, working out the authority of Scripture, that's the secondary thing, because it's complex. Scripture isn't just one verse or one book, but multiple books, and it's been handed down and handed down. All the books together is called, is called the canon. And over 2,000 years, the church has been interpreting Scripture. The authority of Scripture really matters. But how it is authoritative is through deliberation and consideration, thought and process. 
You know, there's a version of Christianity which says, it's really easy, and it's really fun. <laughs> but like all things that say they're easy and fun, they come easily and they go easily. In fact, Christianity is hard, but it's important. It's not easy, but it is deeply significant and rewarding. Resting with scripture. Think of it more like going to the gym. Something that, that does a great deal of good, but it's hard work. As well as the Bible being authoritative, the next thing I want to say is that it's a bit of a dance between two questions. What did the scriptures mean at the time when they were first written and what do they mean now? And it's a dance between those two questions. They're not easy to distinguish always, but we have to ask and attempt to ask, well, what was, what was it mean at the time? And what might God be speaking to us about through these words? And that can often feel more like art than science. And for me, this, loving the scriptures and learning from the scriptures has felt like wrestling. But moments of profound insight and breakthrough and the daily habit of, it feels to me like being fed. Scriptures are the source of just profound strength. Irreducible structure for the church. Without the scriptures, the church would not be. And the church would fall to pieces. So when we come to a passage like this, that we are, you know, things that may have offended us, or just, just hot, just, it's important to be steady and slow. To remember that the Bible is authoritative, but it's a process of deliberation and discerning, asking these two questions, what did it mean? And what does it mean now? So let's get into it from, from verse uh, 18, chapter 3. What you need to know is this is a particular genre of literature. This is something that people would recognize as a household code. A household code was a very common form of writing to describe how houses should be run. And the original one goes all the way back to Aristotle. So a long time before this one, people writing household codes and recognizing that not just what happens in the law courts, not what's decided in parliament, or actually so much of culture and what's foundational to human life is figured out in the family. And so these codes were written to determine how people should live. And the second thing you need to consider is what a household is. More than a domestic dwelling, every household had firstly a head, known as the paterfamilias, and a household could be up to easily, easily 50 people. It's not what we think of as a nuclear kind of family, but a household was, it was basically a big dog who ran it. It was always a guy called the paterfamilias, and then a series of family relations and business relations, and almost every household would have slaves. You know, some would say that 85% of the Roman Empire at the time of, of, of this being written were slaves. Another book I've read said 50%. So, you know, who knows? But it's a lot of people. The point was, when we think about slavery, we often come up with instant images of the horror and evil of transatlantic slavery. And there have been multiple forms of slavery throughout human history. But this form of slavery at the time when this was written was something slightly different. But when, so when, it, when, when Paul talks of a house and a household, it's of this extended big gathering of, of business relationships and slaves and wider families. And it would be, like I said, up to about 50 people. Okay, let me give you the big reveal. The big reveal is that the bits that you heard in this that you probably thought were really controversial at the time of them being heard weren't. The bits that you thought sounded quite reasonable would have actually made people's brains explode. And I'm going to tell you why. And I'm going to tell you why you would have thought it in that way around at the end. 
So let's get into it. So wives, submit to your husbands. Submission was totally normal for women to man and from wife to husband. That was just the way society was structured. That was totally to be expected. And to see that in a household code wouldn't have made anyone's mind sort of blow or anyone surprised. It would have just been an expecting thing. But then the next verse, verse 19, husbands love your wives, do not be harsh with them. At this, people would have already been like, oh, well, I've never heard this before. Do you know why? They would have never heard this before. There's literally no other account of a husband being spoken to in this way, of being demanded responsibilities, that his actions and his rights would have had responsibilities. Husbands do something. You're obligated to care for your wives. Now, wives would have been considered to be the possession of a husband. And with a wife, a man can do what he wants, as with a slave, as with anyone else. A free man, a paterfamilias, the head of a household, literally could take anyone, anyone that he wanted as a sexual partner. And wives were considered to be, without anything that we would think of as rights, just the, the possession of, of a husband. So the moment this verse is read, instantly, intakes a breath, shouts of surprise, or just deep confusion, that a husband is being called to do something. And the most profound thing the husband is being called to do here is love. And the word is agape, sacrifice. There's another household code. In fact, there are three in the New Testament. The one in Ephesians, built on this one, goes even further and says, the way in which you should love would be exactly the same way in which Jesus loved the church, is in dies for the church. This isn't just love as a feeling. Love as a convenience. This is self-sacrificial love. Husbands are being called to do something that at the time was almost unthinkable. In the New Testament as a whole, the scriptures call men to a course of action that had not been seen before. The scriptures call men to use a power that was given to them by the culture and to be completely transformative by laying it down in love for others, and here, namely, their wives. To be monogamous was almost unthinkable. To be fully submitted to Christ and fully submitted to your wife. To be self-sacrificial, nurturing, training, empowering. None of these are things you will find anywhere else in classical civilization. None of these things will be written down. But here, Paul, trying to live out the way of Jesus and call others to do the same, calls husbands to a radical course of actions. So it goes on in verse 20. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. Again, nothing controversial in that. But the next one again. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Children are also considered property. For the father, again, to be called to a way of kindness and a way of love and tenderness. It's completely countercultural totally revolutionary. So you might see there's a pattern here. Um, moving on, verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters and everything and do it, not only when the eyes are on you to curry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Paul affirms not the institution of slavery. That's kind of assumed, like I said. To, to say, I, I don't believe in the institution of slavery at the time, would almost be saying, I don't believe in Wi-Fi. Or they believe in the internet. Now, you can make a personal choice. I mean, Lulu, she's not had a phone for a while. I mean, she is a very, very wonderful person who manages to live life in quite an extraordinary way. But that's a personal choice. She's not had a phone for like two months. I'm like her PA. It's a nightmare. I'm not very good at being a PA. It's actually a disaster. 
And she's actually not in any rush. She left it somewhere and she's like, but it's such a pain. She's a radical woman, living a radical life. It's doing my head in. She's made a, she's made a personal choice that is important, very important. But for her just to say, I disbelieve in the system of phones. It's almost unthinkable as a starting point. And so at this practical level, what you have to understand is Paul is bringing the raw theology of Colossians into the concrete reality of life. He's already said in chapter 3, if we paid attention last week, there's neither slave nor free. So he believes that all people are equal in Christ, but he wants to bring not just a nice idea, a theory of general Christianity, but he wants to bring the ideas and start to work them out in the concrete reality of the world around us. He does not condone, but assumes the institution of slavery. And then it moves on. Verse 23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Now, the calling on slaves in this is, I think, subtly more powerful and provocative than it sounds. You see, if a slave was to just say, all right, I disbelieve in slavery, you would quickly be a dead slave. You would be in prison at the, at the very least. But what he is calling a slave to do at this moment is to consider beyond the confines of what is an unjust and oppressed system. You know, it goes on, just a few later, devote yourselves to prayer. The whole idea of Christianity is built upon a system that we can't even fully see yet, but is breaking into our reality. That there is a life beyond this world. There is a greater kingdom. There is a greater power. And that fundamental reality of Christianity is what makes sense of the kind of thing that Paul is saying here. Slaves work for Jesus. Be free in a way that although you are enslaved on earth, do not let the indignity of that position contain your freedom because Jesus is even greater than anything on this earth. The calling on the slave is to see beyond the condition that they're in. He's already said, neither slave nor... The, the reality is greater than the context you're in. He's calling people to step beyond their current context and to glimpse with Christ that a different possibility is at hand. But ultimately, apart from, I think, the subtle stuff there, there's nothing too controversial in that. But the next verse, but the next verse. Verse four, masters provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Again, you can't find this anywhere else. According to, to the master, to be right, it's the same word as righteousness, that we, the idea that of justice and mercy of Jesus, the idea of just moral goodness. Do what is right and fair. Now just imagine, this is the thing to really understand. Imagine that this has been read out in a church. It started off maybe sounding like the controversial bits was that wives have been, have been asked to, to submit to their husbands and slaves obey your masters. But imagine this has been read out to a community of slaves and masters of husbands and wives. Tell you what would have been controversial. The husbands and the slave masters and the fathers being called to account to use their power differently. That's what would have made everyone's heads turn and eyes roll. Like, what is going on here? This is seriously radical. 
There is no other account where there's reciprocity, where there's mutuality between those that have power and those that don't in any household code in, in ancient literature. And there's very, very rare accounts where women and slaves would be tortured in this way as though they have dignity and a right in themselves. Directly women being asked to submit, asked, not just assume, and slaves obey your masters. The early community would have received at this moment a, a command that would have shaken the status quo. It would have stretched their imaginations. It would have felt slightly scandalous. And all the way through, you see this idea of lordship, as is fitting with the Lord, as the Lord requires. That's what marks this out. It, it, there's no other code like this where Jesus, with someone like Jesus. It's all about the law of nature, not the law of Christ. But here we have Christ in the center because what's going on is, is Paul is trying to bring the cosmic grandeur of Jesus to the messy, concrete reality of real life. Lordship right in the middle of, of, of how we live. Reciprocity and mutuality between those that have power and those that don't. The central issue, how do we deal with the concrete realities of society when the ultimate reality we believe in is something that we believe one day will be full but is not fully glimpsed and only experienced right now really by faith. The teaching is subtle, but remember the precarious position. Paul is already in prison. You know, I, I was speaking with Anna earlier, remembering I've lived in countries of incredibly conservative nature and countries where Christianity would be illegal and to profess faith w would cause serious oppression. Now, if I said to a woman in one of these countries, by the way, you're equal with your husband, can you just go and announce that down the street? I'll be sending her to at the least destitution, at the worst death. The reality of this is it's a tactically genius move by Paul. Because what he does here is he lights fuses that blew up time and time again over the last 2,000 years of liberation and justice. But he doesn't annihilate the early church. Because this is so incendiary and so revolutionary that to overstate the case and to do it in the wrong way would mean death for people. But he does subvert. He does turn things upside down. And the implications of this were truly extraordinary. Just going to do two very quickly. And then ask a couple of questions briefly of what it means to us. So you're doing really well. It's an awful lot of information, isn't it? Like I said, it was like three days before Christmas. How am I going to get it all done? Well, now I feel like we're getting close to Christmas Eve. So keep going, and we've got a mince pie on the way. So verse 15 in, in the Colossians reading. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. The list of names is just wonderful. It's just incredible. Eleven particular people named in Colossians. We've heard of he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were made, and through him all things were made. We've heard of the cosmic grandeur and glory of Christ, the universal Jesus, and then 11 names of just people like you and me, Frank and, and Sybil, and Sonia and Darren. What an amazing combination. Normal people's names listed at the end of a letter about the one that holds stars and the one 
who loves us with an everlasting love. Amazing. And these names can tell us so much, but two names now would tell us that the, the message that, that, that Paul was preaching, the household codes, was a revolutionary and liberating force. Because Nympha was a church leader and the head of a house. In fact, Eudonia, Sintake, Priscilla, Aquila, Phoebe, the New Testament is surprisingly littered with women playing roles that they weren't allowed to, according to the rules. Already in the church in Colossae, women are being liberated far beyond what could be conceivable if it wasn't for Jesus, if it wasn't for the Jesus that liberated women in his ministry, if it wasn't for the early church that glimpsed a new humanity, equal under Christ. Secondly, Anisimus, in, in verse 9, one of the other names, he is coming with Anisimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. This is dynamite. Anisimus is mentioned elsewhere. It's in the book of Philemon. Philemon is just one chapter, so it's always difficult to quote. Because sort of, people just say verse 6. I'm like, but which chapter? It's like, well, it's only one. It's just very hard. It's very complicated. But it is only one chapter. I said that Colossians takes 15 minutes to read. Philemon takes about three minutes. So if you have to queue for your coffee, and they're taking ages to make it, you can read Colossians and then Philemon. All in the time to get a flat white. But it is worth to read. And Philemon is there. It's a letter from Paul, probably from the same prison he's writing this, probably actually just before he wrote this. And why is it there? Because when you read it, you think this is a bit random. Until we get into the, the, the nuts and bolts of why the letter is there and what's it about. Paul, Paul, um, Paul writes Philemon to Philemon and names him as a household leader of the church, another host like Nympha. So a pattern familiar, it's the head of a family. And he talks about Anisimus as one that's come to him in prison and, and Paul leads him to Jesus and he becomes useful to Paul and, and, and helps him. But he releases this information in the, in the letter of Philemon that actually Anisimus was a slave. Anisimus was one of Philemon's slaves. Verse 10, that I appeal to you for my son Anisimus who became my son while I was in chains. That's in Philemon. He's become his child. This runaway slave has come to Paul in prison. He's become his child, meaning Paul led him to Christ. And that means they're a type of family members because in Christ, they're brother and sister, father and son. And then verse 12, I am sending him who is my very heart back to you a tenderness and a level of connection that you would not see between a, a citizen like Paul and a man who was a runaway slave. And so here comes the bold request. Here comes the dynamite now blowing up. Verse 16. No longer a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. Paul is writing and saying, take him back. He has done wrong. But because he's in Christ, He's no longer a slave, and better than a slave. He's a dear brother. Tall order, because under Roman law, Philemon had every legal right to get Anisimus punished, put in prison. Paul is asking him not only to forgive him, but to welcome him back as a social equal, as a family member. This is more than kindness. This is disruptive to the status quo. This is freeing a slave and treating them as a family member. 
It's about reconciliation. The very beginning of Colossians. For God, in chapter 1, verse 19, was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Jesus is pulling back together things that have been split apart. He is reconciling things. The way in which power has been misused to create a system called slavery, Jesus is reconciling together runaway slave and slave master. This powerful moment of forgiveness. Paul even offers that I'll pay. I'll pay you. But he's your brother in Christ. He's not a slave. So, it's more radical than you thought. It's more disruptive than you thought, but probably in the opposite way than you expected. That's what it meant then, but what does it mean now? What could this be saying to us? Well, firstly, I feel repentant and sad in my heart. I feel sad at how these verses have been used to continue oppression, not end it. I do think it's the case that the, the, the teaching of Jesus lit a fuse that blew up time and time again in Nympha's life, in Anissa's life, and through the centuries. That meant the people who were oppressed were liberated. But I also think these verses, and I know these verses have been used to, to continue oppression, to hold down women, to justify slavery, to treat children badly. So my heart is heavy reading these, knowing that they've been used badly and wrongly, these verses. But I do think that it did it litter it lit this fuse that banged and banged and banged through the abolitionist movement, through feminism, through all kinds of different movements that happen in the world that the church sometimes has been late to catch up to. The questions have been asked about clear injustices. Tom Holland's thesis, the popular historian, is that that's all been thinking with Christianity, all of it. He, he, he loved dinosaurs when he was young, and he thought the Bible sounded boring. <laughs> He thought Romans sound much more interesting with their swords and they sound very exciting. Christianity sounds a bit boring. So he studied Roman history and Greek history and Persian history. He became, he is really the best-selling popular historian, originally writing about such things. And then one day he was looking at, at the reality of Roman life and thinking, it's so alien. Like, I'm no longer a boy. This is brutal. This is horrible. These are none of the values that I live with. Even in what I see, disagreements on the streets. People are disagreeing with values that seem closer to me than these do. I'm, I couldn't live as a Roman, where children are, are thrown away as, as, as products if they're not desired, where life is disposable. Tom Holland's thesis in his book, Dominion, is that actually in the left and the right and all parts of our society, we're always thinking within Christian terms. We're thinking within terms and ideas that were started in the New Testament and all the things that we value, the rights and the systems that, that make life possible, the freedom that we experience, that all comes from, from Christianity. In fact, that's my point earlier. The reason why you find some of the bits unlikable and detestable when you first heard, oh, I don't like that, is the effect of Christianity in following the story through. If it wasn't for the abolition movement, if it wasn't for feminism, if it wasn't for all these kind of things, you wouldn't be surprised by those scriptures at all. In fact, like I said, if I've lived in conservative countries, Anne and I were talking about the global world, many parts of the world still wouldn't be surprised. Wife submits to your husbands, slave obey your masters. Well, obviously, that's the obvious. The only reason we find that offensive is because of the impact of Christianity. It has been working its way through for 2,000 years. And the radical reality of these words still have more to do. They have more to do in us today and for us today. And as we close, just two, two brief thoughts on where this lands. Firstly, power becomes redemptive through love. 
Paul isn't against the use of power. He's quite playful with power. He uses the fact that he's a citizen. He uses all kinds of aspects of his identity. But he uses it in a playful way, knowing that the ultimate power is Christ. And what he calls those with power to do is to lay it down for others, to serve others in love. Power becomes redemptive through love. So are you aware of your power? Do you know that you might exist in a more powerful position than others? Maybe the way your voice sounds, maybe certificates on your wall from institutions you've got degrees from, maybe your gender, maybe the colour of your skin. Have you been aware of of the power those things give you? One definition of privilege is, is a hidden power that you may not even know. Paul would call all of us to examine ourselves and to realise that we have power. Our world is so different from this world. Our society doesn't function like this. We can't just take that household call in the Bible that we should live that. It's a very different world, but the principle there that we should apply is to use our power redemptively through love, to become aware of there are things and aspects about you that you could use for others. How could you open the door, metaphorically speaking, for others? How could you use your power as a sacrificial act of love? And lastly, submission is, a, is redemptive when it's chosen. Submission sounds scary and handmade tale and whatnot that could bring up terrified images. But actually submission is giving yourself to someone. It's actually what makes community possible. It's what makes family possible. It's what makes marriage possible. <laughs> it's what makes a decision over like whether to buy this or to buy it. At some point you have to submit to one another. It's what makes church possible. So what makes good leadership accountable? My leadership is submitted through the wardens with the PCC, the archdeacon and bishops. All good things have submission involved. It's not scary. It's actually creative. But it has to be chosen. When submission is demanded, it's destructive. When submission is chosen, it's, it's a gift that you give. Choosing to be part of a team and for your will to come over to others. It's what makes good friendships, good family. And it's what makes a good church submit to one another. So the list of names is truly incendiary. It reminds us that actually this story advances by people like you and me stepping into a disruptive story, stepping into a radical story, Asking the Spirit to to fill our imaginations. That we would use the power that we have. We have extraordinary power as a church. There's nothing else like this that stood for 700 years that people look to. We have resources and money and abilities. How are we going to give it all away? And let's just think about women for a second. If you were around last week... Amanda told some of the story of this parish and area. And there's a fascinating thing, that women have played a disproportionate role in the history of Bow. From its very beginning, from Queen Matilda falling off her horse, wanting to build a bridge, Prisca Coburn, the prioress, the ladies that started the nunnery over there, the suffragettes, and the list goes on, the, the matchstick factory. There's something about the water in this area that says something to me that we should be praying, what would women do that's distinctively theirs to do in this place? And how can we as a church be an enabler 
of that liberation because frankly I'm still aware that I exist in a world where men are, are, are able to get away with extraordinary levels of abuse over women. And the statistics of our society show a level of injustice and inequality that really is, is still frankly disturbing. And I just wonder if the story of women playing a disproportionate role in the history of Bo is not over and whether we as a church might want to pray about that and enable something of that. So what would the Spirit do with your name if you were written onto the end of Colossians? The end of this journey looking at the cosmic Christ and how the universality and wonder, supremacy of Jesus works its way out in the concrete realities of messy systems and maybe subtly at first subvert and change. The light fuses that blow up injustice. Would that happen again? Would your name and my name be written into that story? <laughs>